Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number five of Hurricane Season 2021, and it's podcast number 61 in our series. And today, Luke, just coincidentally, here we are kind of in the middle of a Tropical Storm Elsa as it goes by the Keys. We'll talk more about that in a second, but it's been quite a day in the lower Keys. It has been rough weather down there. I uh, just saw a gust of 70 miles per hour. Right, and we should talk about sustained winds and gusts uh, because you know the factor, the gust factor is actually nominally 40%. So if you have 40 mile an hour winds, you know that puts the gust. You have 50 mile an hour winds that gets you up to 70 for the gusts. If you have 40 mile an hour winds, it's something less than that. So. Uh, you know, you get hurricane force gusts or close to it with relatively modest sustained winds. That's the difference between a gust only three seconds long where a wind is averaged over a sustained wind is averaged over a minute. So different thing. Anyway, we'll sure. talk more about that in just a second. Uh, so today we're going to talk with Robbie Berg, who's a hurricane specialist and communications guru at the National Hurricane Center. Robbie writes some of the best technical discussions of anybody at the NHC, although if you read the technical texts that come out with every advisory, uh, which is the forecasters thinking and an explanation of the models and the data from the hurricane hunters and all that, you know they're always well done, but Robbie is really great at it. We spoke with Robbie a couple of weeks ago about how the hurricane specials craft the advisories, the cone, and how it might or might not change in the future, and lots more about uh, work going on behind the scenes at the National Hurricane Center. We'll have that conversation with Robbie here in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, July 6th, 2021. Unbelievably, the year is, is more than half over. If you're listening at some point in the future for the latest weather, tune to Channel 10 in South Florida or Local10.com, where we stream all the Local 10 newscasts all day from 4.30 in the morning to 11.30 at night. And the Max Tracker Hurricane app will keep you up to date on the latest on any tropical systems, and the Local 10 Weather Authority app will have the current weather information. And if you go to local10.com hurricane, you can sign up for a newsletter from me. You scroll down to the middle of the page under the picture of the Local 10 weather team, and you'll see a box there. You put in your email, and then when I do a tropics update, which I do just about every day, in fact, I have been doing it every day uh, with uh, Elsa and other things going on, in the tropics, you'll get it emailed directly to you. So, okay, Luke, um, Elsa is, has passed Key West, I know, I guess, as we're recording this early in the afternoon on uh, Tuesday. And so uh, you've been monitoring the weather. What, so you had the 70-mile-an-hour gust we just saw. What else has happened in Lower Keys? Uh, well, something that's interesting with that gust. So we have our reporter, Ian Margle. He's out live on Duval Street as we start the noon uh, newscast. I'm on first, and then we go to Ian after that, our live reporter. So I'm on, and I'm talking about the weather, and there's a bad band that had come through the keys. And, you know, the gusts were going 60, 62, 70, 60 for a stretch of time. This mm -hmm. wasn't just a quick little blitz, and then it was done. And this is so the Key West talking, Airport, right? You're talking about the Key West this Airport. This Key West Airport, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the International Airport. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, we were also getting reports from the Weather Service office, um, from Key West, and they were at 56 mile per hour wind gusts. So there's a lot of weather going on there. On radar, there was a band that was marching up toward uh, Big Pine and some of those, no names, some of those locations. But that's what was moving through. So I'm saying it's been rough down there. <laughs> then, right after that, we go to our live reporter, 
and he's in a gentle rain and they're just they're laughing about it because they say that this is our biggest wind damage and they zoom in on a broken twig <laughs> on the ground so it was a disconnect there from the reports that you know we're they're miles away at the airport and they're away from the ocean um yeah, uh, but, but where they that's, were the, that's the nature of the bands of a tropical system. Inside the bands, actually, the air is sinking to some degree. So you actually get, you know, any kind of the significant weather is kind of squashed if you're inside them. But also the airport is uh, on the uh, Atlantic side of Key West. So yeah. they're going to get, when the wind is from the south, they're going to get the full blast of the wind. But I'm sure that they were having a band in, at the airport and maybe in Stock Island and up that way, but it just wasn't on the Duval Street end of, of Key West. I'm sure that's what was going on. Although if the, if the uh, National Weather Service office there was really getting 56 miles an hour, that's closer to Duval Street. You know, that's down in the kind of older part of town. And it wasn't even just then. He was. He mentioned in his live hit, he's like, it's been like this for, you know, an hour or two. This morning, they were doing some hits like 9 o'clock, and uh, they said they were getting pummeled. But it was one of those things that's a reminder of, oh, yeah, you see an observation, and uh, it may not be that big of a deal. That not representative, that far away. Right, of, yeah. of the whole place, even though Key West isn't that big a place. So let's talk about the forecast for a second. The storm is going uh, more or less parallel to the Florida West Coast, it looks like. Uh, and it, it looks like, I thought there would be more in Miami-Dade and Broward as this thing has gone north. I guess we still can't completely rule that out, but the trajectories on the radar don't look much like much is going to come here, right? That, that outer yeah. band that earlier was kind of over the upper keys, but it was kind of broken. I thought that might rotate up, but really that's dried out quite a bit. Yeah, it's awfully fragmented. The rain shield, you know, the kind of envelope of rain is nosing into, and just light rain, not even really a, a band to speak of, just a shield of rain is nosing into western Dade County, but it doesn't look like much. Oh, um, the Everglades. We knew this. What's in, that? In the Everglades, you mean, when you say western yeah, it's Dade west. County. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So not overpopulated Dade right. County. Right, I mean, yeah, so over I mean, the, the terminology is weird in in South Florida, because we say West Dade, we mean Kendall. But in weather world, we say Western Dade County, and we mean the middle of, you know, out there yes. where the TNT airport is, uh, the Collier County line, yes. So not a big deal for us uh, today, but yesterday, we were talking about this before the podcast. Yesterday, I ran into an interesting communications issue, and that was that, uh, you know, we were talking about tropical storm force winds, tropical storm force gusts, uh, so the middle and lower keys under the warning, expected tropical storm force winds. The upper keys, maybe some gusts. That's where the watch was. Dayton Broward had neither. Mm -hmm. um, but we knew internally that, you know, we could get some strong thunderstorms in the bands and that could bring, you know, gusty winds from the bands, but no watch or warning. So there I am. I'm on television talking about, okay, we don't expect tropical storm force gusts in Dayton Broward. Then we get a severe thunderstorm warning to pop mm -hmm. up from one of the bands, 60 mile per hour wind gusts. Viewers have to be confused. I, I need to think of a way before I go on to separate the envelope of wind, the circulation from the storm versus the thunderstorms in the far reaching bands and try to make that more clear because um, it, it could get confusing in a hurry. Yeah, I think, the, I think the issue is to, in this kind of situation, we probably should have forecast for Miami-Dade and Broward 
uh, spotty, if any, as opposed to none. You know what I mean? Mm. Because because we knew that that you can any day that you have thunderstorms, you can get a wind gust of tropical storm force. I mean, that's sure. kind of nothing, right? Uh, you can get a wind gust of 60 miles an hour on on any day with significant thunderstorms that I guess are, by, are technically by definition severe at that point. But you know that's not a hard thing meteorologically to do in South Florida. So. Um, when we're saying where it's going to be, I, I think the characterization should be, uh, you know, a few, if any, or some kind of, of playing it down in terms of the amount of significant weather, but the idea that there would be a better chance of significant weather in the upper keys and then likely in the lower and middle keys, which actually was the Hurricane Center's forecast. And boy, has that turned out to be an amazingly good forecast. I saw the, the track. Yeah, where they've looked the, the track forecasts, uh, you know, stacked up throughout the event compared to what the observation has been. It's right on. It almost right. looks like one line with these little bits of different colors yeah. that you can see sneaking out from underneath it. It's incredible on a weak storm on a tricky forecast. Well, yes, and with models all over the place, right? Yeah. With models, uh, the European model was going east of the Bahamas at, uh, for a while, and the UK Met Mile, and, you know, two outstanding weather models is going way to the western Gulf of Mexico. But they uh, hung with the average right down the middle. And I think once again, the GFS, the American GFS model is going to be the one that had the best idea, not that it was always exactly right, but had the best idea uh, for this storm once again, which was the case last year uh, during hurricane season. So yeah, that's so Elsa remains uh, lopsided. And we're ahead, by the way, from last year. Elsa, you know, the right, fifth, right. it's the earliest east storm on record, so we're already ahead of 2020. Lopsided storm, it's still sheared, the low level, the mid-level, they're, they're separated. Now it rakes up the Gulf Coast of Florida, and uh, with it being so right side loaded, it's going to just bring bad weather all along. And with its time over water, the latest uh, comb and forecast from the Hurricane Center brings the possibility that it could nudge up near hurricane strength, 70 mile per hour tropical storms currently forecast, but up in a vulnerable area, getting near Tampa, and mm -hmm. then the surge impacts, of course, a concern uh, in northwestern parts of the state. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is uh, sig significant for the Tampa Bay area. And actually, when you think about it, if the storm is going parallel to the coast on the backside of the storm, the water, because it's going counterclockwise, the water is being pushed toward the coast. Right, so after the storm, the center of the storm goes by, that's when you'll get the biggest push of Gulf water against the Gulf Coast. So that's where they're going to get, uh, they're forecasting uh, three feet or so of storm surge, three, and then farther north, Tampa Bay and points north, three to five feet. But that's because the storm is turning into the coast at that point and is forecast to be a bit stronger. It could easily be a hurricane. You know, it's five miles an hour and you can't really forecast plus or minus five miles an hour anyway. So, uh, you know, they think the odds favor it staying a tropical storm, but, but they put up a hurricane watch just because they, you know, it's in the noise, whether it's 70 or 75 or maybe even 80 miles an hour. Uh, and certainly that's imaginable. I guess a question would be, since it's going to be under more influence of the big dip in the jet stream, right? That's gonna drive it to the Northeast. Uh, wouldn't just intuitively, I would think that there would be more kind of bulk shear in the atmosphere so that you might get more spin-ups of tornadoes 
uh, at some point, you know, farther north than we had down down here. Uh, you're the tornado guy. What's your thought? That would make sense. I would agree. And already today, you know, we're still kind of far away from that. You know, you're looking for the shear, the changing of wind direction with height if you want to get some spin-ups. And uh, we already have that today. In fact, uh, there is a likely chance that we get a tornado watch probably in southwest Florida right, today. Right. But as it goes further north, that chance should increase. You 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 get the proper winds, you know, that rotation with height, and it's easy to get some of those bands to spin up tornadoes. So we will see. Yeah, although this isn't a very strong storm, so that obviously happens. The stronger the storm, the more the dynamics, the more the air is rising, the the, the more that's going to happen. But I, I would be surprised if we don't get some, I, I think, with uh, the profile, wind profile that we're going to have. And you don't need a strong storm to get that. Look at Claudette. Mm -hmm. Claudette spun up, what, an EF2? Was it EF2 or an EF3 in uh, Alabama? Yeah. And they had true. several tornadoes with it. So it, it's not that different of a setup. With Although when you get Elsa. farther north, the farther north you get, the more likely, like on the northern Gulf Coast, it's more likely because you get more dry air aloft and you get, it's not a, yeah. as tropical an atmosphere, right? Sure. But I remember... Boy, the storms blend together. Maybe it was Wilma. Of course, that was a big and had been very powerful storm. A bad tornado in the Keys, uh, which was really a surprising thing to have a EF2 or EF3 tornado come through the Keys. It's very, wow. very surprising. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. Well, well. anyway, everybody on the West Coast um, needs to, you know, stay in close touch with what's going on there because this is not an insignificant event for people that live, especially in low-lying areas uh, along the West Coast, and especially Tampa Bay and points north up to the Big Bend where the storm surge potential is so huge. All right, so uh, here's our conversation with Robbie Berg, hurricane specialist at the National Hurricane Center and a specialist in communications as well. Hi, Robbie. Welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So there's a lot to talk to you about, but let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in weather and specifically in hurricanes? So I think like most meteorologists, it started pretty young. Uh, I was living up in New York. It's kind of where I was born and grew up the first part of my life. And, you know, hurricane-wise, I still remember Gloria. I think I was actually in upstate New York at the time, a uh, young kid. Just I remember looking out the window and seeing trees blowing and things blowing down the road. So that was probably the first memory of a hurricane that I can recall. Uh, and then after I moved down to North Carolina, when I was in elementary school, we got hit by Hurricane Hugo, even up in the mountains. I lived in Asheville yeah. at the time. And even then, that's pretty much where the core of the storm went through, maybe just to the west, or sorry, just to the east. through the Yeah, Charlotte, Charlotte right? really got hit, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, but I still remember, we actually went to school that day. So I remember going to school on the school bus I think I was in fifth grade at the time, and it was pretty nasty that morning. So uh, I got the, the hurricane bug pretty early. Of course, then there was a superstorm in 93 in Asheville right. with all that snow. Uh, that was a pretty, pretty big event as well. Um, and I just decided, you know, I really liked hurricanes. I and mean, I still remember watching the Weather Channel when I was young. I had my hurricane plotter chart, and I'd <laughs> go and wait for the tropical update uh, every hour and plot the latest coordinates uh, based on what was on TV. So... I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. It's 
as was it Bill Reed always said it was a uh, malfunctioning gene, I guess, of us meteorologists. Yeah, so many people tell, tell a similar story, right? 50 minutes after the hour was the tropical update, right? right? Yes, every hour. Right. So you, in some sense, worked your way up uh, to a hurricane specialist at the National Hurricane Center. And I'm sure a lot of your colleagues there did a similar thing, or they had a slightly different path. But is your path, do you think, a model for student meteorologists today that want to get where you are? Yeah, so I mean, because I wanted to do tropical and when I was looking at colleges, it was either stay in state and go to NC State in Raleigh, uh, or I was looking at a few other schools as well. But uh, the in-state uh, path for me worked well because NC State did have a tropical program at the time. And uh, I also had a marine, marine science program at the time. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to combine those two sciences I liked the ocean, I liked weather, and it just seemed like a natural fit for me. Uh, so I did uh, go there, got the double degree in meteorology and marine science, and also did some research in tropical meteorology. Uh, then after that, I, I decided to move down to the University of Miami, go to grad school. Uh, again, just staying on that tropical track uh, because I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was so fortunate enough that even after being down in Miami for a year, I was able to get an internship at the Hurricane Center. Uh, and I guess the rest is history as far as, you know, working there. So, uh, you know, I think the path set me up to have those opportunities. Uh, I'm not sure if I had taken that exact path, you know, where I would have been, where I would have ended up. Uh, so I'm pretty fortunate in, in that regard. Yeah. And those internships are critical, aren't what a What an opportunity to get an internship with the Hurricane Center. It's, you know, in the TV business, you have to have an internship. It's part of the process of getting into the career and into the business. Tell me about your gig. What's the job of a hurricane center storm specialist uh, during when you're working a storm? Yeah, so, you know, we put out the advisories for, for all storms, the Atlantic Ocean and the Eastern Pacific Ocean. So, you know, as we ramp up to the peak of the season, it can get quite busy. Uh, oftentimes we're writing a forecast, making a forecast and then writing the forecast discussion on one, maybe two storms at a time. And you really only have a three hour window to do all of that to make that forecast and get your reasoning out uh, in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in a way that makes sense and that helps decision makers. Uh, so it can be busy. You're analyzing all the data that comes in, whether it be from satellite observations, uh, aircraft reconnaissance, and then you're looking at the model data on the different scenarios that a storm uh, you know, may actually do, and then making your forecast. And so that's it's a pretty compressed schedule to get each of those forecasts out on time, because people expect those forecasts to be out at 11 a.m., 5 p.m., and then 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. Or before. They're yes. not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or four if you're in the central time. Or before. I'm out. saying, or before those times. Or before. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Where have I heard that before, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, it, it's, 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 it's a high octane job, you know, when we have big storms, when we have multiple storms, because uh, there's really not a whole lot of time to rest uh, and you're, you're just always on the go. And for me, because these storms don't know what time of day it is, uh, you know, I'm working shift work where it could be a day shift, I'm getting up extra early uh, to go into the office, or I could be working an overnight shift where I'm getting in about 10 p.m. and you know, working through the dark and trying to drive home in Miami traffic in the middle of morning rush hour when you're completely tired. So uh, it's, the schedule's always changing this time of year. I can imagine that's got its own challenges as well, but just the pressure cooker of when an event is unfolding and you've got a lot of data to go through, you have to write, and that's, you, you mentioned that, a big part of your job is outside of meteorology, correct? It's in the writing part. 
and you have to write clearly and as you say in a way that people understand is that's not an easy skill you know you've got complex uh, things that you're trying to distill and in order to keep it uh, coherent it, it, I imagine that's a challenge and, and you, the hurricane center is very good at that so is that a skill that you have always had or did you acquire that after working for the hurricane center yeah I mean so as forecasters it's something you kind of learn on the job I mean there's, you can make a great forecast, but there's the nuances in the forecast that really only get conveyed in the, the forecast discussions that we write or the briefings that we provide to whether it be the media or emergency managers. There's, there's nuances to that forecast that really takes those other avenues you know, to get out effectively. So I've learned a lot of that you know, through the years doing these forecast products. Uh, but there was a time about 10 or 11 years ago uh, where I really did start getting more interested in the communication aspect of forecasting. And so uh, back at the time in 2010, th there was a workshop called Was Is, which is Weather and Society Integrated Studies. It was a workshop that they held out in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And so I attended that workshop and it kind of started me on a whole new path. So I didn't diverge from the meteorology, uh, but I started getting more interested in social science and communication and how do you get out an effective forecast and communicate that effectively. Uh, so I actually ended up going back to school and I got a master's degree in communications from Johns Hopkins University. I did the whole thing online while I was working still at the Hurricane Center. Uh, so it was a, quite a busy few years trying to get that degree. But, you know, I really think it's helped uh, immensely just to have some of that uh, information in your back pocket to know some of the skills uh, and best practices when it comes to trying to communicate that information, whether it be to the public who maybe don't understand some of the scientific information. Uh, or some of our users that are a little bit more savvy uh, in you know, understanding how to craft a message to suit their particular needs. Yeah, we'll talk more about the whole communications thing uh, in just a little bit. But the, the uh, forecast discussion, which, of course, for us, is the thing we go for. We glance at the top line of the advisory, the top line information, and then, you know, we're all about the forecast discussion. But uh, do you sometimes have a sense that, that I mean, the, the real stuff is in the discussion and it is less so in the advisory. And, and uh, you know, maybe that's there might be some other way to to do it, to get more of that nuanced stuff. Or do you just think that the media, you know, people like like Luke and I and Betty and the rest of us uh, in on television, and on radio and online, you know, are the way to kind of combine the discussion and the advisory and, and get, get it to the public. Yeah. Well, I mean, we call it, we call the whole thing a forecast package for a reason, I believe it's right. because it's not just the discussion. It's not just the forecast itself. Really everything that we provide at say 5 PM is meant to be taken together. Uh, they complement each other. They feed off each other. So, you know, I make a forecast, I write a public advisory, which is more of the kind of the, high level basic information on the storm. And then there's the forecast discussion, which is the supplemental in-depth get in the forecaster's mind mm -hmm. part of that forecast. Um, you know, and even as I'm doing a forecast, as I'm clicking on my screen to put the forecast where I think the storm's gonna be after the next five days, I'm already thinking in my head, what is it I'm gonna say as I'm typing out that discussion? What is it I wanna convey? What's the most important thing about this forecast that I really wanna get out there? So 
you know, it's not just individual elements. I'm really thinking about the whole thing as I'm putting it together during that three hour span. I can imagine since it has to happen that fast. Well, we do the same thing too. when We put together yeah. maps, right? Putting uh, together for television. Now are the hardest days, do you think of your job when there are a lot of storms, like when, you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific go crazy all at the same time, or when the storms are super consequential, when you have a, an Irma out there uh, or, you know, something that like Matthew that was kind of paralleling the coast and was a kind of a nightmare of communications because the cone is over the land, but uh, the storm is offshore. And uh, right. is there one or the other, or is it just, a, is just all kind of uh, difficult and just different? So they're all, they are all different. Although I would say, because I keep talking about this three hour window, it's, mm -hmm. that's the limiting factor. Mm -hmm. So it, I could have a big impactful storm making landfall. And if it's the only thing out there, you know, we've got plenty of time to make the forecast. There's many of us on shift, all, at least two or three of us on shift, do decision support, talk to the media, do briefings, make the forecast, do everything that's needed, coordinate within the weather service. And we have plenty of time to do that. The problem is when we start getting four, five storms at once. We're kind of limited on resources, both with the people we have available, because we have to staff 24 hours, and then also the time. If you have to get all of that done within the three hour period, then it's just, it gets chaotic. And oftentimes you feel like you don't have the ability to put as much focus on what you need to put your focus on. So mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, there, all aspects of the job can be difficult, but when we get five or six storms at once, because we do with the Pacific as well, uh, it, it just gets to be a little bit chaotic and it's hard to really place that focus where it needs to be. At least in general, you don't have more than one like super landfalling threat at the same time. It's generally there, you know, generally you have one, maybe right. two, but and the rest of them are out in the ocean yeah. somewhere. I guess, right? At least for the U.S., but we can often have a, a landfalling storm in the U.S. and then maybe something down in Central America right. or the Caribbean at the same time. And you know, it's not just the United States, because we're also coordinating with all the countries down uh, there in the Caribbean, talking to them, calling them on the phone, and that in itself takes a lot of time. So right. uh, it can get quite hectic. Exactly. Luke? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm wondering, too, about, I imagine that there's a lot of pressure outside of just the forecast, and that is maybe from other people, um, you know, politicians, uh, emergency managers. Do you ever get pressure to not put a warning up? Um, you know, these warnings can be very consequential as far as evacuations and everything else that goes along with that. Does that ever happen? You know, so I wouldn't say that we get pressure to not do those things. On, on one hand, I would first say that the forecasters are pretty well isolated. Not that we don't understand what's going on around us, but it, that's kind of a sacred seat. When you're the forecaster on duty, uh, everyone really does try to give you your space, give you your room to think about things, make your decisions. Uh, without some of those out, outside influences you know, bothering you and affecting those decisions. But what I will say is because we are aware of how impactful those decisions may be, we don't just put up hurricane warnings or storm surge warnings you know, willy-nilly. We're already talking to local officials. We're talking to local National Weather Service forecast offices so that people are kind of aware of what might be coming up. If there are some disagreements on what might need to be put out, we can try and hash that out beforehand. Uh, but I would say that in, you know, in most cases, we're, we're pretty we're kept pretty isolated to do the job that we're supposed to do and to try and make those decisions based on the as sound meteorological you know, science as we can. Yeah, that, it's the answer that I would have liked to have heard. So that's good <laughs> that, you know, you guys are 
you're isolated from that. That's good. But, you know, speaking of watches and warnings, I'm reading a lot these days about, you know, hurricanes from the past and where the warnings would get issued. And that's, you know, the flags are up and people are taking notice. But as years have gone on in the media and with apps, there's more and more focus on the cone. Has that changed the impact of watches and warnings? Yeah, well, I think there's a, there's several things that have impacted watches and warnings. Uh, like you said, the cone uh, is is one thing. It's it's so pervasive now. I mean, it's almost cultural in a sense that everybody, especially if you live in the state of Florida, you know about the cone of uncertainty. So it's one of the first things that's shown on TV when there's a storm. It's one of the highlights on our website when there is a storm. So everybody sees it, yet people don't always know what it really means. And so I think people are trying to make decisions off of that one particular product uh, when those decisions probably shouldn't be made off of that product itself. Uh, the other thing I'll say though, is that we're in a different world now where you know, back, you think about in the seventies and eighties where the watches and warnings were almost the only type of information out there. You know, there was a very basic forecast and watches and warnings were put up along the coast. And that's mostly what the message was for people, that there's a hurricane coming, you have this amount of time to get ready. Now you think about we're in a world where there's multiple types of products being disseminated by multiple different types of entities. It's not just the Hurricane Center, it's not just you guys in the media, but we even have uh, all the uh, amateur meteorologists, I'll say, on social media. So now think if you're somebody in the public, who are, you, who are you supposed to listen to? You know, we'd like for them to listen to us. I'm sure you guys would like for them to listen to you, but I'm not sure that they're always listening to the trusted sources. Uh, and so that becomes a problem where if you're getting all this conflicting information, you really don't know who that trusted source is. You really don't know who you should be listening to. Yeah, it's, it's almost like we're at a point where the science has outpaced our ability to give a cohesive message. The messaging, the communication, is the hardest part of this, of the endeavor uh, of a hurricane forecast. Is there any, anything that we can do about this as far as the cone, the watches, the warnings, um, you know, going to the trusted source? It's ultimately the job of those of us on television to relay the hurricane center's forecast. But I imagine you battle some of that too, where you have people that are on the media and maybe they're offering their own opinions and things can get murky. Uh, anything that we can do about this? Uh, that's a good question. I don't have the answer or, you know, off the top of my head uh, because I, social media is a very tricky thing. Uh, there's so many bullhorns out there, and I don't know how you silence the few that you know, shouldn't be as loud as they are. Uh, I will say that at least within the Weather Service and then within NOAA now, you know, we are doing or conducting several social science uh, research projects, or at least funded them. And, and one of them is to look at the entire product suite uh, that we produce for tropical products. And, you know, I will say in some regards, I think it's, it's messy. I mean, there's so many different products now that are issued from the national level at the hurricane center. And then even at the local level at our local national weather service forecast offices. And I don't know that all those products always are married very well. I'm not sure that they always get the message out effectively or cleanly. Uh, so we are looking at ways, you know, in the future, how to essentially modernize the product suite, maybe make it more simplistic. Uh, more effective. I don't know what that's going to look like in the end, what, what's going to fall out of that. But I think if we can clean up some of that, then, you know, maybe it'll help make the message a little bit clearer uh, for those who are trying to communicate. Uh, so I wish I had a better answer than that, but I, I am optimistic that we're going to get to a point where we're going to try and make it a little bit easier to understand some of these products. 
Well, yeah, because you have so many different layers of communication, right? I mean, you ju you have just the natural bias that people have and all the different varieties of personalities involved and, and so forth. Some people are are just so ready to jump on something bad that's going to happen. And the other and then other people are 180 degrees opposite is they will deny, deny, deny that anything bad could possibly happen. And with the, so yeah. that they respond differently to the same sort of risk uh, messaging stimuli, right? Yeah, uh, you know, that, that brings up a great point. I remember there was a study done a couple of years ago uh, along the coast of Connecticut. Uh, and this would apply to pretty much anywhere along the coast, but they did essentially what's called an audience segmentation analysis. And they looked at the residents along the coast of Connecticut to see how they would respond to hurricane information. And as you probably expect, as you were just saying, people span the gamut of the first out. In other words, they get some information, they're told to evacuate, and they're out of there. And that's a certain percentage. And then you go to the other side of the spectrum and there's what we call the laggards where they're just not going to do anything. Nothing is going to move them. It doesn't matter what our message is. We can beat the drum as hard as we want and they're just not going to leave. So think about it. And then you got everybody in between. So we're trying to put out messages to tell people what we think they should do before a storm. And yet the, recept the reception of that message is not going to be the same from person to person. So you know, this is a tough, tough nut to crack is how do you craft the message so that you're getting as many people as possible with the understanding that you're probably not going to get everybody. Yeah, and then you have the problem that people in the Northeast have a far different level of understanding of, of National Hurricane Center products and hurricane communications in general than people in Florida, for example. I mean, the perfect example of that was in Sandy. They did, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, Dr. Jay Baker from FSU and other people did uh, extensive research during Sandy, which is like the best possible research, is to really get people when they're making the decisions as opposed to, you know, just a kind of an idea. What if kind of uh, research is always a little sketchy for anything that's emotional like hurricanes. And what they found is when they asked just the very simple question, were you under a hurricane watch or were you under a hurricane warning? Yes or no. Right. As basic a question as you got. Most people said Yes, they were either under a watch or a warning, which, of course, they were under neither. But on the other hand, people are on television nonstop warning them. So, of course, they were being warned because they were looking at it a very simplistic, you know, what's the definitions of the words in my mind, watch and warning, as opposed to kind of the technical definitions that people have a much better appreciation for on the Gulf Coast in Florida, you know, places in the southeast where they deal with this. But. But anyway, so you have that whole problem, too, right, is that you're putting out basically the same products for the New Jersey coast or the Connecticut coast as you are for the Florida coast. And the level of understanding the public is different. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. We were just talking this week. We were looking back at the storm surge warning since it was instituted back in 2017. I think mm -hmm. we have not yet put up a storm surge watcher warning for anywhere in the northeast, essentially nothing north of the Chesapeake. So. You know, whenever that time comes where there's a hurricane threatening that part of the country, you know, we have to put out that storm surge warning. I mean, I almost don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we, we're not even sure if the media or other decision makers up there really fully understand what those products are. So, you know, actually, we did a workshop with some of the media folks up there this week. And so we're, we're still doing the education process just to make sure that if a storm happens to threaten up there, you know, they do understand at least what those products are meant to, to communicate. Yeah, I mean, there's education throughout all aspects, including the government. I mean, you know, in, in Sandy, New York City had one of the most advanced emergency management 
services that any entity has, but they didn't understand the, the fundamentals of the storm surge in Hurricane Sandy. So it's, it's kind of crazy. Let me, let's go back for a second to you were talking about how people digest the information on the website and so forth. And I know what billions of impressions during hurricane season on the National Hurricane Center uh, site, right? Uh, do people in general come and look around or do they kind of come and glance and, and leave? Do you have any, any sense of how that information is digest, digested by uh, most people, uh, considering how many people actually go to the NHC site? Yeah, so we, you know, we have web statistics uh, to see how people are actually traveling around the website. And first thing I'll say is that the most used product or clicked on product is the cone. Mm -hmm. And most of the time they click on the cone, they glance at it, and then they're done, they're gone. Uh, so it, it, that, that's, again, part of the problem is that there's all this wealth of information and yet people are focusing and putting all the decisions based on that one product. Uh, but yes, in general, the people aren't spending a whole lot of time on the website. Yes, you have your power users, they'll be on mm -hmm. there looking at everything, mm -hmm. but for the most part, they're just not. Uh, and, and actually, that, you know, I was talking about the social science projects earlier. We have another one ongoing now that's actually looking at how does the public use the website. And it's, it's really interesting. This is the type of social science I've actually never seen before. They're doing what's called journey mapping. So in other words, they create these almost like avatars of what a... a uh, a person might look like and then they kind of simulate what that type of person might do if they got to the hurricane center's website what might they be looking for what might they click on and ultimately what's going to happen is we're going to get all this data back from this particular project it's going to hopefully give us an idea of how should we restructure the website so that a general person from the public who may not understand a lot about hurricanes in general can find the information they need you know, the, the, the website was built by meteorologists who understand the information. It was, it was built for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we knew how we wanted to organize things. And now we expect people to go there and find what they need. We're trying to flip it the other way now so that, you know, based on someone from the public who's not an expert, how can it be structured based on best practices of other types of websites? How can we structure it so that they actually can find what they need? So. I don't know, we're getting, we're going to get such great information from these projects. It's just different ways of think, looking at things that we've never done before. Yeah, I remember uh, surveys, and I think it had to do with the television screen back in my day, where they would track people's eyes to see where they looked on the screen first and how they digested the information and, and all that kind of thing. It's, it's a similar idea to what, what you're talking about, is trying to understand how people use the product. Yeah, yeah, we did that same sort of thing with the eye tracking uh, with some of the storm surge products that we developed, even just to figure out where do you put the legend mm -hmm. on a map, uh, because people's eyes will focus on different parts of a graphic, and you know, we all skip the legend. Nobody looks at it. Nobody wants to read it. So we at least wanted to put it on a part of the product that we had the highest chance of them actually seeing. <laughs> exactly. It shook the bright colors, right? That's what everybody looks at. Just, right. And then they yes. make their own, you know, the assumptions of what it means. So you did something, Robbie, that I wish I had done, honestly. You, yeah, you talked about this briefly, is that after studying meteorology and marine science, you pursued a master's in communications, which I imagine has tons of utility. Uh, I wouldn't have known that as a college student, but I see it now as uh, I'm in the field of meteorology. What prompted that? Yeah, so again, you know, 
it was weird. I, I mean, I, I was pretty much focused on just the science, the meteorology, you know, getting the masters in that and, and just pure tropics. And that was great. Uh, but then, you know, there were some just changes in my life and, you know, I started exploring a few other things and I'm not sure, I don't know what, where that bug got planted, but this whole social science aspect and the communications, uh, you know, I just really took off with it. Uh, kind of, as you said, I really wish back in, uh, in college, I had kind of known about it back then. In fact, I would really say to anybody who's in college now and might be watching, you know, really think about these other uh, fields that you might be able to at least dabble in because I bet you down the road, in your career, you'd be able to use it and apply it. It's not just all about the meteorology. I mean, we're all weather geeks, we all love it. Uh, but if you're able to pull in these other fields, whether it be computer science or social science and things like that, uh, it'll it'll really serve you well in the end. Ultimately, the job of most anybody that's in meteorology is to communicate to somebody else. You know, Would you recommend, after having gone down this path, uh, to anybody that's in meteorology, that's studying meteorology, um, even if they're not going to be a broadcaster, would you recommend that they study communications? Yes. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to even be communications. I mean, it could be something like psychology. I mean, you know, what are we doing weather forecasts for? Why are we making weather forecasts? It's for the people that need it, right? And it's people. But we have to understand how people behave, how they think. That's all psychology. Uh, I think, Brian, you mentioned some of these bi cognitive biases, how people think about things, the things that they latch onto in their mind, even subconsciously. Uh, we have to be aware of that stuff. We can't just assume that we put the forecast out and it's going to be understood or used appropriately. So, uh, you know, whether it's communication, uh, psychology, behavioral psychology, I mean, any of those types of fields, I think uh, they, they would just do wonders for people to understand how people actually work and how they take in information that they're given. I'll tell you a little uh, story along these lines. It's been, I don't know, it's nearly 20 years ago or something. Anyway, I was honored at FSU. They uh, designated me graduate of distinction of, of the year at, in the arts and sciences, uh, School of Arts and Sciences. Uh, you, I think it was 2002 or something. Anyway, it was a long time ago. Uh, and they invited weathercasters that had graduated from FSU to come for kind of a celebration and so forth. And they called me up and said, when the dean recognizes you, would you say something nice about FSU? Because there might be some media people there. And I said, well, of course, I'm going to say something nice. Well, so I get there. It's a room full of people. I'm sitting with these other graduates of distinction, including some guy that used to run the NSA and and somebody else that invented a cure for cancer. And anyway, it was, you know, this very distinguished group. And the dean gets up and says, uh, well, you all enjoy your dinner now, and then we'll hear from our keynote speaker, Brian Norcross. And I said, nobody told me I was going to give a talk here. <laughs> uh, so while I was chit-chatting at dinner with the ex-head of the NSA and the guy who created a cure for cancer, um, the other half of my brain was going, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Right? And anyway, so I, I got up... Um, after they introduced me and my little talk was that, you know, I'm uh, because I have a, a kind of meteorology and communications masters. I said, you know, what I'm here to tell you is I don't care what you study at this university, that you ought to learn how to communicate. 
you ought to have the, the university to require a communications component, whether you're studying science. Or, so I tried to expand that into something that sounded like a talk by saying the same thing over and over again. But anyway, I've, I have always believed what you said, Robbie. Absolutely true. So yeah, I mean, go ahead. I was just saying real quick, you know, I, I really wish the universities would not just make you take electives because we all took those electives, whether right. it be psychology, communications, but actually then apply it to the major that you're exactly chosen. Uh, and I don't think there's that linkage. I think it's everyone just assumes, yeah, you just have to take those electives and I'm going to get through it. But if we make those linkages, you know, there, I think it'll be more apparent to students, you know, why they have to do that. I agree. I, I totally agree. It ought to be part of the meteorology program that you take these communication right. and, you know, whether it's broadcast meteorology or communications in meteorology, that should be part of the program. So one of the interesting issues to me, I mean, I know you at the Hurricane Center and working with a team of social scientists doing a lot of great things, but the, the weather service is kind of doing the same thing. And one of the things that, that, as you know, I've commented on in the past a number of times is that the weather service messaging and the Hurricane Center messaging are somewhat divergent. I mean, they, 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 you know, it's not that anything is bad. It's just that the systems are not interlocked, really. You don't feel like, you feel like there's still separate things. The daily forecast coming out of the local National Weather Service office versus the bigger picture hurricane forecast. I mean, they're done by different people, even though they can be in the same building, right? I'm just wondering, as, as you're looking ahead, do you see uh, by any chance this stuff coming together where there is kind of one voice out of the National Weather Service uh, that feels cohesive as opposed to the Hurricane Center and the Weather Service uh, somehow being different? Yeah, well, I mean, I can't speak for the whole agency, but I, I would say that, you know, the, what we're trying to do is that the Hurricane Center is meant to be the 10,000-foot view of a storm. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what the storm is doing, what we expect it to do as far as where it should go, where how, how strong it might get, how big it might get. Uh, but then it becomes difficult because we can't then speak for every locality. So what is supposed to happen is that then the, the, the Hurricane Center's forecast is downscaled to the local areas, from the local National Weather Service forecast offices. And, you know, it's at that point where I think sometimes we see a divergence in messages. One, it might be for good reason, because, you know, we have partners such as national level partners like FEMA, uh, the Coast Guard, uh, other parts of the government, uh, national federal government, whereas a lot of their users might be states, local officials and so forth. So there is going to be some division and difference in what those messages are. But we want to make sure that we're not getting so off message that, you know, you're just saying something completely 180 degrees out of phase from each other. Uh, so, yes, that as far as modernizing the product suite, that's one thing that will be looked at is how is it that we can maintain what those particular different users need at the different levels of the government, for example, uh, but trying to maintain a consistency in messaging that uh, doesn't get confused between those levels. I think one of the challenges is that at the local level and i mean the app on channel 10 is, is uh, does this the weather channel app does this too is there are all these deterministic forecasts that come out where your message is very often the uncertainty of the situation right to me that's where the biggest divergence is and one of the problems it, it happens every single day that people pick up their phone and look at the forecast for seven days from now but when the hurricane comes along, we tell them 
we don't know what's going to happen seven days from now, essentially, or, you know, just a general statement about seven days from now. So in my mind, anyway, just to clarify, uh, to me, that's the, the biggest challenge is, is to, you know, all this research you're doing to categorize and describe uncertainty in a meaningful way. Uh, but if you look at the daily forecasts that are put out, not just by the weather service, by everybody, it doesn't have that that communications component to it. And I think that that's a, you know, that's an issue as we all try and communicate to the public. Yeah, and you know, the, the app issue in particular, I mean, we, we at the web service don't have an app. We can't produce an app. That's a private sector function. Uh, so I think, you know, it's hard because even though we're trying to communicate uncertainty in the forecast, it does not get into the apps because it's not a part of the forecast that app developers want to, you know, include. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it should be included, because, especially because hurricanes and other types of severe weather like that are some of the most uncertain types of weather out there. So something that's inherently uncertain and yet we just act as if everything's deterministic, you know, whatever the forecast is, is. Uh, and we don't say, well, it could happen this way. It could happen that way. We need to prepare for a spectrum of possibilities. Luke? Brian, in the, yeah, tell me about what does this look like practically, Brian, in your mind? Uh, just curious about this. Would it be, you, you've talked before about you have to break away from normal things whenever there's a high impact possibility. Mm -hmm. So with this that you're talking about, if there were a cohesion between the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service, would, would that be somebody would click on the National Weather Service forecast and it would be probabilities of hurricane force winds and no temperatures and no rain chances? What's that look like in your mind? Well, in my mind, the idea would be that there's a certain window of time that people need to be thinking about something besides the details of the forecast, that whether the high is going to be 85 or the high is going to be 87 or, or 80 is, is irrelevant if a hurricane is coming. So, uh, I, you know, I propose a variety of ideas of, of turning the forecast into what stage in the process. This is the day that we need to be prepared for so-and-so, combining emergency management messages into the forecasting process, uh, telling people that this is the threat time, like we do on television, where we don't try and forecast if a hurricane is coming or not. We just say depends on, you know, like for the weekend, depend, like, that's why I did that in Andrew for the first time. Depends on Andrew. I put that up on Wednesday before Andrew, which came Sunday night. So I think that the most important rule of communications is the Marshall McLuhan philosophy of the, the format in this case, or the media is the message was his, but the format is the message. So if you change the format to something radically different, you're implying that something is, is very different and you know, it, it has an intrinsic value. I don't know, Robbie, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, and I'd say that at least from the weather service perspective, it, it's hard to understand how somebody is supposed to go and find information they need personalized to them. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them. I mean, you go to the Hurricane Center website and you get a large scale forecast about the storm, but then what? Where, where do you think, like, based on where you live, what does that mean? Then you have to hunt and peck around, figure out you know which WFO makes your forecast. Where do you click on the right map? And it's just it's like a maze, and it's no surprise that people, you know, lots of times can't find the information they need. And so you know we need to do a better job with that. We need to make one cohesive, uh, you know, 
infrastructure that allows people to find the information they need for where they live or whatever point of interest they might be interested in uh, without having to hunt and peck around for it. So in that regard, I say we have failed. I mean, we need to fix that uh, before the communication gets any better. I agree with that. And, you know, we touched on this earlier uh, about, you know, the media. I kind of want your thoughts on our end, how we do, because this idea of having a cohesive message, that's on us, too, on the broadcast end. And that's what we're supposed to do is take the Hurricane Center forecast and maybe explain it uh, and, you know, draw it out and make it more localized to our area. But it's the Hurricane Center forecast. But, you know, there are a lot of meteorologists across a lot of the nation and so many different stations and they don't have necessarily the training that the Hurricane Center forecasters do. And maybe they put their own spin on the message or they relay it or they offer their own thoughts. Uh, and I wonder if it gets distilled or altered or how much of this it, you see. I'm thinking of Laura last year. It's a prime example. You guys had an iron stomach at the Hurricane Center, uh, you know, a gutsy forecast, and it panned out really well. But everybody was kind of shaky when the euro started to kick that thing left in its forecast. So. Uh, my question is, is this a struggle? Is the media side a struggle? Maybe we do. Maybe we do well. How well do you feel the message gets across from the media, generally speaking? Well, you know, as, as far as like those types of forecasts with Laura, uh, I think, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, we have a tried and true method for the way that we forecast. And that includes conservative shifts in the forecast from cycle to cycle. So yes, the European has some great has has had some great years. It's been a great model. It's still a great model, but that doesn't mean it's always right. Mm -hmm. So even when we see a trend or a shift in one particular model, like the European, we like to see that trend continue both in time with that model and other models keep up with it at least. And with Laura, we didn't see that. Okay, so you know even then we made very slight conservative shifts and lo and behold everything came back and ended up being you know where our forecast was so that way that we do that forecasting it's it's the way it's been done for years and there's a reason for that it's because we don't want to be chasing models from cycle to cycle or else uh, we'll be caught off guard and in this particular case with laura if we had gone where the european had gone uh, that would have meant a lot more evacuation in texas specifically the houston galveston area uh, and so they saved both a lot of money and resources by not having to make those evacuations uh, based on the forecast. So uh, every model has its good day and bad day, I, I suppose. And it's just, it takes that expertise to understand how you actually use those tools and not just jump on every shift, you know, from cycle to cycle. Yeah, but the, the, the media in general, you know, we need to be cohesive, just like you know, the, the other entities do with the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center. Do you, do you get a sense of that? Do you get a sense that there's a cohesive message relayed to the public from the media? In general, yeah. I mean, I actually think that, you know, we're all on the same team and that's not just meant, I'm not just saying that to make it be a good, feel good story, but um, I think we're all out there to do the, the right thing. I think uh, sometimes where we run into problems is, is the focus, what's important with the storm. Uh, I mean, I'll say from our perspective is we think there's too much a focus placed on you know naming systems what's the name of the storm going to be what's the next name on the list uh, and you know we don't even have a storm formed i mean every look here everybody assumed that this system we have in the gulf of mexico uh you know was going to get the next name and then we had something form off the east east eastern seaboard that got the name so uh 
we jump to these things about, and it seems like that's where our interest lies instead of what the actual forecast is. And I think that's the most frustrating thing for us and, and where I wish that we were a little bit more on the same page and focusing on what's most important at the time. Yeah, and I agree. You know, I still sometimes see like deterministic wind speeds that are offered on television that, you know, you're going to get 55 mile per hour winds in location X and 103 in location Y. And it, it, you see stuff like that. But in general, that's a good thing to hear. Uh, Robbie, let's, t- let's talk about the cone. Um, there's a lot of talk about the cone and maybe changing it or replacing it or leaving it the way it is. Tell us your take and tell us, too, you mentioned this earlier about the big project that's underway about the cone's future. Yeah, so, you know, first thing I'll say about the cone is that it's nothing is going to change fast. And the reason I say that is because there's all this talk about we should get rid of it, just scrap it, start with something new. But frankly, it's like taking candy away from a baby. I mean, I swear if we were to just remove the cone, you would hear screams because <laughs> everybody's so used to it now. It's like one of those pieces of communication that whether they like it, they hate it, whether they understand it or not, it's there. It's, it's pervasive. People know it. They see it. Uh, so we can't just get rid of it. But what we have to do is assess how are people using it? Do they understand it? And based on that information, what, is there, what kinds of things can we do to make it better or modify it? Uh, and so that's what we're doing now. In fact, we just finished a, a big project where uh, you know, we had whole, always historically talked to emergency managers in the media. And we kind of have a good sense for how those two communities use the cone. But we haven't talked to other users that we also know uses. And that includes uh, the shipping industry, the maritime industry, uh, oil rigs off the coast of Louisiana, for example, uh, the aviation industry, the tourism industry. There's all these different economic sectors that we never, ever talked to. So we actually just finished up a project with those sectors to understand what kinds of decisions are they making? Uh, do they understand the cone and, and how they're making those decisions? And all of that information is being fed into uh, you know, helping us decide any types of changes that we might want to make. Uh, there are also some external uh, forecast or sorry, research projects being done at the t- this time as well. Uh, other entities are looking at the cone, trying to assess how the public is understanding it. Uh, so I think I say it's a, it's kind of a multifaceted project and it's not just us. We have all different parts of academia taking a look at the project. And you know, eventually we're gonna to have to just kind of assemble all that data and try and figure out what's the best way to couch this information so that the greatest proportion of people understand it. We're never gonna satisfy everybody. In fact, Brian, I think you and I were talking that we yes. saw some comments on social media on something about the cone. Yeah. And go to my Facebook page. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll want to shoot yourself. Go to my Facebook page. There's so many opinions. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, we can't chase opinions, unfortunately. We all probably have a way we'd like to see it. But mm-hmm. really, it's our charge to create something that, again, the highest or largest proportion of people will understand and can actually use. Uh, so I don't know what this product is going to look like in 10 years. Uh, but it's going to take a, a concerted effort, not just from us, but you know, working with you guys in the media as well to, to try and figure out what should we be displaying? What should we be putting out there for people to consume uh, in order to decide what they should do before a storm hits? Can you characterize you know, how many people, what percentage of people, whatever, understand the cone besides beyond just the idea that it kind of shows the direction the storm is going? that understands what, you know, what the width is about in some sense or understands that bad weather can be outside of the cone and, you know, sort of those kinds of fundamentals. 
Yeah, so I don't have a, a specific percentage. Uh, I Some of the numbers I've seen, I was actually surprised that more people understood it better than I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually a little bit encouraging, but unfortunately there's still too sizable of, sizable of a population that doesn't yet. Mm -hmm. uh, or that they, you know, they look at the edges of the cone and they see, oh, I'm inside or out. Right. Now, I will have to say though, is that I have even seen on TV it being miscommunicated. So it's oh, not just absolutely. the public, right? <laughs> yes. It's also, you know, the, you know how it's being communicated on TV. And I often have seen people say, oh, you know, the cone has shifted and now this city is outside the cone. Well, that's not doing us any good if the people that, you know, the public's coming to us for, for our expertise and yet they're being told that they fall outside the cone and they're safe. So uh, it's not just a public issue, unfortunately. I think it's just trying to figure out the communication of the product and understanding the product. Yeah, uh, there are some things we're going to potentially look at. Uh, but one thing I've always thought about is why do we have sharp edges on the cone? Because it does, it almost enables people to look at this inside-outside sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, what if we did a more transparent cone that kind of faded out uh, to zero or to full transparency on the edge? This way, you couldn't say definitively I'm in or I'm out. Uh, you could just see that your risk maybe just depends on how much transparency there is to that product. So, I think there's things we can do to try to alleviate some of these issues. Uh, it's just going to take us to, you know, again, assessing and looking at through all this data. Oh, you, you uh, froze there, but that's okay. So your last thing you said, looking through all this data. So I will just pick it up from there and I'll edit it out. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what we really have to do is just look through all these data to figure out what's the best way to create a product that suits the most needs as possible. If I understood you right, it sounds like this is going to take a good while to do. Is most of that time evaluating what you'd want to do, or is it related to the mechanical processes within, you know, the National Hurricane Center, the National Weather Service, the whole weather distribution system, and changes that might have to be uh, technical kinds of changes that, that might have to be implemented, uh, you know, in that area. Yeah, so it, it, it will be a multi-year process because this is not the only project that's ongoing. Uh, we also have four other major projects, uh, social science projects that are ongoing, looking at things like probabilistic communication in general. Uh, the website, one I, I talked about uh, already, uh, we have another project uh, that's ongoing on something that's called the anchoring bias. In other words, as forecasts come out and they change every six hours, how do people take in that new information? Because the, what happens is the human mind gets stuck on the first thing you saw. Mm -hmm. Especially uh, so if you liked that all, message. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you yes. like that message, then, you know, <laughs> great, I'll stick with that. So even if there's changes, you just kind of tune it out. So all of these projects are, in fact, those four are finishing up this summer, at the end of the summer, I believe. So what the Weather Service then has to do is figure out, okay, these are the best practices, the recommendations, that fell out of these projects. And we've actually requested that they provide us these kind of short-term uh, easy wins, things that we could change next year versus these longer-term things that we know are gonna take you know, years to develop or figure out. Uh, this way, I think it enables us to plan in the coming years to make quick changes as needed uh, and then understand how we need to move forward, say five to 10 years down the road because it won't all be fixed overnight. I mean, we just, it's the government. Right. So <laughs> it just doesn't happen that way. Uh, but I think if 
these projects are going to all be kind of clustered together to give us a good sense of how we should be moving forward. Robbie, I got into meteorology. I never thought I'd be in hurricane country. I've always been a severe thunderstorm guy, a tornado guy. I grew up in St. Louis, and then I went to school in Oklahoma, and I was convinced that's where I would be. I worked for seven years in Nebraska and uh, was all about Great Plains and chasing tornadoes. Do you guys talk at all with the tornado guys at Storm Prediction Center? Because I look at their outlooks, and I wonder how that would work for hurricanes where you have, you know, a, it's a risk scale. It's like it, it's you're under, all it says is that you are at risk, and it's color-coded, and it's over an area. And then it doesn't tell you what the risk is. All that it is is you have a risk, obviously of weather, but you have to go deeper. It's layered before you can get to tornado. Is it tornado risk? It might be a moderate outlook with a low tornado risk, but a real high wind threat. You don't know until you go to the next layer. But the message is right there. You're under a certain number of risks. And I had a thought of, you know, would that work with a cone where you could still have your cone, but then let's say that the worst weather's on outside the cone. You know, if you had a color scale that showed, oh yeah, oh yeah, this you're still at, you know, um, an orange risk, a moderate risk, or whatever you would want to call it, that's outside the cone. Let me show you why. This is this is where, and, and then they could investigate it and see, oh yes, it's flooding threat here, or the worst winds are outside the cone. Just wondering if there's any communication with the with the guys over there in Norman, Oklahoma, at all, or 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 maybe not. No, we do. I mean, they're one of our sister national centers uh, out there at the Storm Prediction Center in Norman, and uh, we do talk to them. And in fact, uh, some of their best practices, you know, we use, and vice versa. Uh, we watch to see the things that they do. It, how does it? How is it received? And you know, frankly, I'll say that some of the recent changes to their scales, you know, were very well received. Some of the words they used for their risk categories were not very <laughs> yeah. well understood. No kidding. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, in that regard, we look at that and say, okay, uh, before we make any changes in that direction, we better make sure that, you know, that's the right way to go. Uh, so, yes, we play all, you know, hand in hand. We're, we're working on some of these same issues. Uh, I will say, too, that it, the struggle with the cone is that it's only meant to tell you where the center of the storm may move. On top of that, with hurricanes, tropical storm, tropical depressions, we have many hazards that come with that. Wind, storm surge, rainfall, tornadoes, rip currents. I mean, there's a whole multitude of possibilities that might occur with that storm. And you just can't encapsulate all of those multi-hazards in one graphic like the cone. Uh, so the question is, what's the best way to present that information so that people who are at risk of a particular hazard get the information they need? Uh, so, you know, I take, for example, say a tropical depression. Let's say it's, it's a very weak system. It's not even going to strengthen. We're not forecasting it to strengthen. You're going to have a cone, right? You're still, it's just because it's depression doesn't mean it doesn't get a cone. It still has one. But because it's a depression, we're not forecasting, a strength, forecasting it to strengthen. That means there's really no wind field. There's no tropical storm force wind field with that storm. So what is the hazard you use to draw out that area? Now you might be concerned about rainfall uh, or maybe tornadoes. And the way that that area might be drawn, you know, it's not going to look like a cone. So it, it's we're all attached to that cone. But remember, it's just where the center is going to move. So how do you make a visual display? And I'll say it, that looks pretty. That's not just a mishmash of colors and lines and all over the place. Uh, that people are going to actually have have trust in, and so I think that's where we are, and that's what we're trying to figure out: is 
there's just so much information and we have to try and create one graphic that tells the story at one particular time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I agree with the, uh, exactly what you said, Robbie, is that it has to look good because it has to be simple enough that people get some impression of it, right? This is all about impressions. This isn't about facts, right? People are motivated by how they feel and what impression they get from the information. I mean, I got credit for saying all kinds of things during Hurricane Andrew that I never said. Um, and, and, and because people had a good impression of, of whatever I was doing, they just had a good impression of it. So they had good feelings about it. That's just the reality of how people deal with information is if, if they have an impression that they are threatened and you're the one that gave them that impression, then the particular words, they don't remember the particular words, right? It's all about, and so yes, simple and clear is the bottom line, but what does that mean is, is tricky. Uh, so just one more, more thought. This is almost a, a philosophical thing, but forecasts, I mean, with hurricanes, as we go forward and we get better computers and better models and, and so forth, they're always going to have an uncertainty factor, right? They're, over time, the shape of the dis distribution is likely to change some, but there are always going to be, you know, a low odds, but high consequential high consequences tail, right, on the distribution. It's always going to be, I mean, do, do you agree with that? And, and doesn't it in some sense get harder to get people to understand that that high consequence, low odds thing exists as forecasts get better, right? If people get too much confidence in the forecast and start believing it is so absolute, they kind of can forget that. But we, I think just by the rules of chaos theory and the rules of, of physics that there's always going to be, you know, a fairly low odds, but high consequences, potential outcome for especially strong storms. Yeah, I mean, and you know, some of the research has shown that we're, we're possibly reaching some of the limits of predictability uh, for these storms. You know, we might be only able to forecast where a storm goes within a few miles or how strong it's going to be several days out. Um, it doesn't mean we're not going to stop trying and making you know, as good of a forecast as we can. Uh, but you're right. We have to remember that these outlier events are still going to occur. And that's why we make such a strong push to keep people apprised that, you know, this is the forecast, but you should be preparing for this. Mm. Uh, because based on past storms we've seen, what we know a hurricane can do, we need to be prepared for that. Uh, so, yes, but we still get surprised. I mean, did we expect Hurricane Michael to become Cat 5? before it hit the panhandle? No, I mean, it, the conditions just did not look conducive for that at the time. And yet it still went on and did that. So, you know, we still have a lot to learn in tropical meteorology. Uh, and unfortunately, forecasts will probably only get so perfect uh, or close to perfection. Uh, we just have to find better ways to communicate that the uncertainty is always gonna be there. Uh, it's not going away. We deal with uncertainty in all aspects of our lives. And this is really no different. Yeah, I think the, the biggest challenge that we have going ahead is this issue between a deterministic forecast and a deterministic expectation and the reality of predicting these high consequence events that you have to really look at the risk. Uh, so you can have low odds, high consequences and still have risk. Well, and I think we're, we're almost, uh, you know, creating this monster ourselves. I mean, I think if you go back a few decades ago, you know, people at the time then expected a forecast to be only so good. 
Right. Uh, and so, yes, you can speak on Andrew. I mean, what did people think about when, you know, the storm did what it did and a few days beforehand, we didn't expect that. And I think at the time, because of what the science was, people said, yeah, well, that's meteorology, that's weather forecasting, mm -hmm. you know, that's going to happen. But because we have gotten better with forecasts, now it's almost like people expect perfection. Uh, and we still have to keep reminding people that, yeah, we're closer to that, but we're really never going to get there. Right. Right. In the Andrew situation, nobody three days out thought that we could forecast it anyway. So the fact that it all changed uh, two days out was not some big shock to the system and people reacted in the right way and people were prepared by the time it happened. I mean, it turns out they weren't prepared enough, but they thought they were prepared. They had the time to do what they were going to do and, and uh, settle it. All right, Robbie, uh, really appreciate uh, your time today. Appreciate your work and it's great having you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Brian and Luca. I really had fun being here and appreciate you uh, having me on. Robbie Berg, hurricane specialist and communications guy at the National Hurricane Center. Uh, he's uh, really terrific. So, Luke, what do you think about the cone? With also, we've seen a lot of people on social media, including media people who should know better, say that so-and-so place is not in the cone, implying we're, you know, we don't have to worry or if the threat is less or something like that. Even this morning I saw Key West is out of the cone. Well, I mean, the storm was, yes. was just approaching Key West. Of course, it's out of the cone. But, uh, you know, so we still are in that in the cone, out of the cone kind of thing, even though we always, always, always say that the worst weather and bad weather, in this case, the worst weather may well be out of the cone. And uh, often and essentially always these days, bad weather is out of the cone. What do you think? Well, eventually everybody will be out of the cone, even if you were in it. You know, you could be just on the south side of a Category 5 hurricane and be out of the cone. I think the cone's great. The cone is great. It's a victim of its own success in a way. It is so good that uh, the side effect, the positive unintended side effect of it being a, an awareness tool, like it was back in the day um, where it incorporated a sense of, look, you're in danger. Um, this is an awareness uh, tool. But that is, even though it's not what it was for, it's what it kind of was used at. It's no longer intuitive. And if something isn't intuitive and we have to spend as much time as we do explaining what the cone is and the cone isn't, and a lot of people don't necessarily understand that, but they're still going to the Hurricane Center forecast and clicking on it, you have to take a second look at that and think, okay, well, there's a bit of um, a disconnect here. And while it's great, maybe some sort, I don't think you can ever get rid of the cone. People are conditioned to the cone. People want the cone, and on some level they understand it, but maybe some sort of a composite could be used in the future. I don't know. There are smarter people than me that are working on this problem, but I'll tell you what I like. The more I look at it is the Joint Typhoon Warning Center's cone. I don't know if it would be practical for us, but what it does is it gives the, it, it's a cone, so it would be identifiable. People would recognize it. It looks the same, but it has the tropical storm force wind field and has the error of that tropical storm force wind field. If you're in that cone, that cone will tell you there's a chance that you see impacts from that. On top of that, the uh, within the cone, it gives the size of the storm and the shape of the storm. So it does everything that the cone does right. plus more and you get all the information at a glance of what you, th what a lot of people, I believe, think the cone tells them. 
But the Joint Typhoon Warning Center's cone kind of incorporates all of that. So I don't know, Brian. That may just – it could cover up half the United States if we had a storm coming our way. Maybe it's not practical, but I like that idea. Well, yeah, so the Joint Typhoon Warning Center in Hawaii, I mean, they're really there to serve the Navy, right? So I think yeah. one of the, the issues is that their cone is designed for people that use it all the time and are trained to use it, where the National Hurricane Center serves the public in general and emergency managers and, and whatnot. So the challenge is that the public doesn't pay any attention to this stuff except when they have to. So an average person on the coastline in a normal year might encounter the cone every few years. It's not, you know, because they're not going and looking and keeping up to date every minute with, with what's going on with the storm. So having, you know, it's, the question is what is enough information and what isn't, what is too much information and where's the, the fine line? The, the Japanese, the Japanese meteorological agency, uh, they have a cone that is also more complicated looking, much more complicated look, looking than ours. It provides more of that kind of information. And then they actually, you know, they created cones back in the 50s that I never knew about until in the 2000s. <laughs> so, I, you, know, I, you know, we just didn't have the internet. We didn't know all these, all these things back then. But, uh, but so they have just made theirs more complicated over time with the idea of being very kind of precise about it. But, you know, it, it really has evolved. You kind of hit it back in the day. So back in the 90s and 2000s, the cone really told you to a significant degree, never 100%, but to a significant degree, whether you needed to prepare. First of all, when it first started, there were only three days of forecasts. So when we first started, the, the current version of the cone, which was in 1996, because before that, the graphic software wouldn't support it. So in 1996, we, we did an ice cream cone-y kind of cone, and, and it was a big fat thing because errors were, were big. Uh, and it you know, was essentially, if you're in the cone, you need to prepare. In actual fact, sometimes storms were big and weather went outside the cone. But, but I think it's good to review what's, why the cone worked when it was big like that. And it's because for a long time, back, in, back then, first of all, in the beginning of the cone, the width of the cone was based on the average errors of the previous 10 years of forecasts. Well, that meant that it was including forecasts from 10 years before, which were nowhere near as good, and that forced the cone wider, right? And then you add to that, when you get a, uh, a hurricane that's of, of significant strength and danger, forecasts for that uh, for that kind of storm is better automatically. Forecasts are better for that kind of storm automatically because the computer models latch onto the storm. They know where it is. Uh, you know, as we know, hurricanes are better forecast. And then you add to that that when a hurricane is threatening the coast, which is when the cone counts, of course, when it's coming up near the coast, the government, the NOAA and the National Weather Service, deploy all the resources to make the best forecast possible. They sample the atmosphere more different ways and, and so forth. So they make better forecasts for storms approaching the coast that are strong. So that means that the forecasts are more likely to stay near the center of the cone. 
Well, if because of the rules of a 10-year average, the cone is wide, if when you count in all the tropical depressions and tropical storms out in the middle of the Atlantic that all the resources aren't applied for, the cone is wide. Now that means for the storms that really count, the weather generally does stay within the cone because the cone is more, or the, the track is more likely to be near the center line. So, um, I mean, to me, that mitigates for having a wider cone. You know, and, and maybe the cone, instead of being two-thirds of the time, is 80% of the time the center state was in the cone. I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't, I hate to spitball this kind of stuff because Robbie and lots of people are thinking about this and working on it. And, and so I, I don't want to come up with a, a simple solution for a complex problem, which that sounds what I, sort of like what I just did. Uh, but you know what I mean? When it was wide... It worked better, <laughs> you know. It, it just it just because, and it was three days, and you know, so you, you really don't prepare. I mean, you know, ninety percent of the people looking at the cone don't prepare in five days. They prepare in that three-day window. So it really was a preparedness tool, right? Then when it went to five days, that kind of complicated the messaging as well, and then you're in the cone more. And I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. <laughs> I think five days, just like the seven and now ten day forecast that you see sometimes. See on TV, the last yeah, station exactly. I worked in Nebraska at a station we had a ten day forecast, and that, oh boy, that was fun. Yeah, um, but I think it's I easier know, in Brian, Nebraska than it is in South Florida, though. A hundred percent. You know, you can see cold fronts coming. You know, yeah. as they're marching across uh, Alaska, you know, yeah. Montana yeah. and Alaska. Yeah, you right. bet. And there's yeah. Seattle yeah. or whatever, but. Um, uh, for here, it'd be impossible. But yeah. I don't know. Like you said, I I don't mean to sound. I don't know. I don't have a good answer here. Um, but I do know that we have a communications problem, and I know that we have a lot of people that are uh, not understanding the cone, and I think that that causes preparedness issues. Um, so yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see because this is an ongoing. You know, the Hurricane Center is aware of everything that we're talking about, right. and they have some of the best and brightest that are working on this. They'll come up with a great solution. I have no yeah. doubt. Uh, I'll be very interested to see what that is. But in the meantime, uh, it's a lot of explanation on television of what it is and what it isn't and just try yeah, to keep Yeah, and the challenge the, is, of course, that straight. most people first see the cone on their phone. That's the first place, right? Or maybe even on, online. But anyway, without the explanation, that's that's yeah. the, that's the big challenge. So anyway, the dilemma is what to do, and I hope they come up with a scheme that uh, makes it so in the cone – the phrase in the cone has meaning again. Anyway. That's uh, what, that's the goal, right? In yes. the cone has, that's the whole goal. Right, right. And I don't envy Robbie and everybody working on that task. Good luck. All right, coming up later this month, we'll talk to primo hurricane researcher, Dr. Carrie Emanuel. Carrie is a scientist at MIT and knows more about hurricanes and climate and explains it all so well, better than just about anybody I know. Uh, you're really going to enjoy our conversation with Carrie Emanuel coming up here in a few weeks uh, in July. And be sure you subscribe to our podcast on your Apple or Android apps so you get notified when the podcast is online. Or, of course, you can watch Twitter or Facebook, and we'll let you know as well. So until then, I'm Luke. No, I'm Brian Norcross for Luke Torres. <laughs> Stay safe. Be well. Get vaccinated if you haven't, and I hope you have. And we'll see you next week.